in September, it'll be five years uh, since uh, Merriam-Webster added a new uh, adjective to its, uh, its dictionary. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's an adjective that um, has its, its roots in, in American slang. It goes back to the 1940s, um, but it wasn't put into publication until a song by Erica Badu in 2004, but it was added to the dictionary in 2017, and the adjective is woke. Woke. Um, Merriam-Webster defines that as being aware of and actively attentive to important facts and issues, especially issues of racial and social justice. Now, um, many of you are already familiar with that word and you know that it carries with it a certain amount of baggage because oftentimes it is used by uh, certain individuals who uh, are left-leaning or liberal-leaning uh, folks who uh, are describing their own point of view um, as opposed to maybe right-leaning or conservative uh, folks who would be on the opposite side of the, their view, and they are seen as, as woke, um, while their opponents they would classify as ignorant. Now, Regardless of how you feel about that word or whatever baggage that it comes with, who could deny the importance of being aware? Who could deny the importance of, of being aware of what is going on in our culture, what is going on in society? Who, who would say that it's good or desirable to remain ignorant of what's going on? The passage that we're in this morning is Luke chapter 12, and what we're gonna hear Jesus say is, be aware. In fact, he's literally gonna say, be awake. Stay awake, be vigilant. And he's going to call us to be aware far more beyond what's going on in society, far more what's going on in our cult current cultural climate, far more than what's going on in, in the political arenas around us. He's going to call us to be aware of his incoming kingdom. Remember that since the beginning of Luke, he's been proclaiming this kingdom coming. We need to be aware of this, this incoming kingdom, this eschatological crisis for all of humanity that we are headed towards. He's talking about awareness of an impending moment of time where for better or for worse, human fate is ultimately and permanently determined to have the eyes to see the big picture, to be aware of something much, much larger. So the theme for this morning would be the lover of God lives with awareness. Uh, for those of you who might be joining us for, for the first time, we've been going through Luke um, since the holidays of last year. We're gonna keep going through Luke until Easter of next year, and I know that's a long time to be uh, in one book. Um, however, we could spend uh, the rest of our lives in Luke. Uh, to, to plunge to the depths of, of this book and, and, and mine out all the riches of that, that's there and what it reveals about God and who, he's, who he is and what he's done for us. Like we could spend the rest of our lives in that book, but unfortunately we don't have enough time. And so I, I live uh, as a preacher with this, this tension of um, wanting to, to do a book justice, but recognize there's 65 other books of the Bible that we need to get to too. Um, I know that I will never be able to preach through all of them, right? Um, but, but there might be some of you who are saying like that's, maybe that's too much time devoted to one book or maybe that's not enough time to, to devote to one book. Here's what I, I, I want to uh, point off right, right off the bat is you don't have enough time not to study scripture. I, I'm aware of how busy we are as a people. 
as a society and everything that we have going on. And oftentimes, the thing that gets chucked out first that, that, that lightens our load in terms of time is our time with God in his word. You and I don't have time to not be in this. There's not enough time to not be in this. And so if you find on a Sunday morning that Justin's gone through too many verses in order to absorb, you have another six days to dive back into that word, right? So uh, the lover of God lives with awareness. This series is is coming to be known as the lover of God series because it's addressed, the, the Gospel of Luke, it's addressed to a guy named Theophilus whose name literally means lover of God. And so whether Luke intends to to write to an individual or he's writing to a people, if this is you, then then you're the lover of God. And he writes so that you might know, specifically that you might know Jesus. Um, And so that's where we're at. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. We're going to be looking at just uh, the first few verses to begin with, 35 through 40. And here we go. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus is going to be talking about an eschatological crisis for us this morning. Let's pray before we get in. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your care and concern that we would not remain ignorant. You have a plan. You always have had a plan. And you haven't kept us in the dark. You desire that we know what your will is. You desire that we take responsibility for one another and we proclaim your kingdom. You desire our participation in what it is that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for the grace and mercy we received. I pray, pray, Father, that, that we would be a people aware of the big picture, that we would live with our eyes wide open as to what you're doing. We give this time to you, Father, and we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So here's where we're going to go uh, this week. Uh, we're going to look at this, this awareness that uh, the love of God is to live with, and, and we're going to see six things about it. First is the lover of God lives in awareness of our identity, of our identity. And our identity is found in being slaves of a different master. We'll break that down. Secondly, the lover of God lives in awareness of the need for vigilance in regards to responsibility. Third, the love of God lives in awareness of mercy and grace. Mercy and grace, that's what we received instead of judgment. Fourth, we live, the love of God lives in awareness of a new kind of family. Fifth, the love of God lives in awareness of the time. Not talking about time on the watch, but uh, in terms of the, the, the history of redemption. And lastly, the lover of God lives in awareness of God's patience through all this. So last week, if you were here, we uh, concluded with this understanding that the gospel is a contradiction of the American dream. The American dream says that should you work hard, you will find abundant life. And what the gospel says is that there's nothing you can do 
that will earn you abundant life. In fact, somebody else has to do the work for you, and it's by clinging to him that you find life in abundance. The, the American dream says that if you're good, and goodness is defined by your work ethic or, 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 or your morality, if you're, if you're good, then you can save yourself, and what you're saving yourself from is poverty in our context. If you're good and you save yourself, then you can have your best life now. The gospel says nobody's good. Nobody's good. There was only one who was good, and that was Jesus. So you have to, to cling to his life and his atoning sacrifice for you. And by doing that, you lay down your life, and you get to have your best life with him in eternity. Well, likewise, this week, we're going to see that the, that the gospel does um, it, it, it rejects, it contradicts the American dream. The American dream says that you should be the boss. The American dream says you should be the master. The gospel says you're the slave. Now, when we talk about slavery, um, we look through a lens of, of American chattel slavery that dominated our country in, in, in its first few hundred years. Right? That's not the right picture of biblical slavery. See, uh, American chattel slavery, um, it, it believed that you could take a person's humanity away. That you could take another person, strip them of their, their humanity, reduce them lower than even animals, and you make them mere possessions that you can do with what you will. You, you reduce them to, to that of the animal. Now, if you can do that, if you take away their humanity, then you can commit all sorts of atrocities against them and justify that. The, the biblical view in slavery is that people are still people. There is a hierarchy, there is a difference between slave and, and master. The slave might be the, the lowest rung on, on that human ladder, but they're still human. Right? Now, um, there's a reason why I don't use this, the, the, the word woke, is because it's, it's dripping with hypocrisy. See, there are people who rightly would say that um, to treat as someone uh, who as, is inhuman because of the color of skin, that's wrong. However, to treat another being because of its size and its location in, in, in the womb and reject it is okay. That, that it's, it's, it's hypocritical to say that all people are created equal except for the unborn. And that kind of hypocrisy is, is actually the same kind of hypocrisy that, that our forefathers are, are guilty of when they said that all men are created equal and yet they participated in the buying and selling of human beings as mere possessions. But the biblical form of, of slavery is, is not to be seen through that lens. To, to be clear, the life of a slave was hard. To be clear, it was not easy. And yes, your life in many ways belonged to your master, but your master didn't take away your humanity. All right? There's an important difference there. And so when you hear from the Bible that you're a slave, you need to think that, that you're not to be reduced as a possession to God, but there is a hierarchy that's in place. Okay? There's a hierarchy that's in place. But, but you and I are slaves. Um, we talked about this last week, that the human heart cannot be a, a spiritual vacuum. The human heart will always be occupied by a master. And that it will either be God who masters us or it'll either be or, or, or the enemy or the world or our flesh. But there's no such thing as a spiritual vacuum. We are all slaves with a master. The question is, who's that master? And, and the reality is, is that our culture even testifies to the truth of the fact that we're all slaves. Um, in 2020, there was a movie came out called The Social Dilemma, talking about our use of social media 
and its use of us. In fact, one of the, uh, uh, the contributors to that movie or that documentary said this, there are only two industries that call their customers users, illegal drugs and software. Users, this, this recognition that, that we are the ones being used by software companies. And another uh, contributor said this, if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. In other words, when you're scrolling down, down that screen, you're on Facebook and you see that video that p- grabs your attention, you know? Somebody's making something really cool and you find yourself a minute and a half later finally scrolling again. Somebody's just stolen a minute and a half of your time. You didn't buy anything because you were the one that was bought and sold. It was your attention that they took. You're the commodity. See, even our own culture recognizes our slavery. The question is, is who will you be a slave to? Will you be a slave to the one who saves you from the wrath of God? Or will you be slaves to something that can't help you? That can't ultimately defend you from the wrath of God. So, first point to consider this morning in light of this passage is that the the lover of God lives in awareness of our slavery, that we're slaves. But it continues that we're slaves of a different master. A different master. Jesus is different. I mean, what other master leaves his throne in heaven and becomes a slave? What other master lives a life on behalf of the slave? What other master sacrifices himself, gives his life for the slave? Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And it wasn't just lip service. The night before, he gave his life as a ransom for many. He wrapped a towel around his waist and he went to his disciples and he washed their stinking feet as a slave all before giving his life. You see, we have a different kind of master. Um, Look what it says in verse 37 again. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. What other master reverses the hierarchy? Jesus does. We have a different master. Um, The passage goes on. Look at verse 39 again. But know this, that the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming. He would not have left the house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. You see, there's, there's two groups of people in this parable. There are the ones who are anxiously awaiting the return of the master, and there are ones who think the master has abandoned the house, and now it belongs to them. The house belongs to them. They're now the masters of the house. And so the return of Jesus is seen like a thief coming to steal away the kingdom that should belong to you. Do you see Jesus that way? Do you see his return as him coming to take away your life, the life that you've built or the life that you want? The lover of God lives in awareness that we are slaves of a different kind of master. Look at verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? I love that line. We do have a tendency uh, to hear a message and, and look around the room and think about who else this applies to besides ourselves. We have this, 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 this tendency to, to make a distinction, and that's what Peter's doing. 
Um, this discourse that we're looking at, it begins in chapter 12, verse 1, and we see this really, really large cloud, crowd of people, and they're stepping on one another. It's so big. But the, the, the disciples are there, the crowd is there, there's Pharisees, there's scribes, this whole big group of people, and here's Peter saying, who are you talking to? Are you talking to us, or are you talking to them? And Jesus essentially says, yes. Yes, I'm talking to everybody. I'm talking to everybody. And so then he goes into this, this dialogue describing three different types of servants. Look at verse 42. And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master, who his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat and the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Jesus gives the picture of three different types of servants. The first is the faithful one. The first is the one who is vigilant in, in, their, in their responsibilities towards what the master has entrusted them with. And when the master returns, he entrusts them with more. But the second servant, he looks around saying, the master's not coming. I'm going to rule, I'm going to use what authority he gave me, and I'm going to subdue the other slaves, I'm going to mistreat them, abuse them, and use them for whatever I want. The master shows up and is quite severe. It says, cuts him into pieces. Now, um, uh, spiritually speaking in, in the Old Testament, uh, especially we see this idea of being cut off. They're being cut off from your people. This is what he's talking about. This individual is cut off from the household of God. He's rejected, he's outcast. The third individual is one who, uh, out of ignorance, doesn't know his master's will and doesn't act accordingly, and he only receives a light beating, but he's not removed from the household. Now, I think the first two are really obvious. It's obvious when we see, like, there are people who know the will of God and some who will act in vigilance and responsibility towards that and some who will act like God's not going to come back and, and they're gonna do what they want to do. Now, this third group of people, I think there's, there, there's room for mystery there as to, to who this is being applied to. We know two things that it's not. Um, our, our Catholic brothers and sisters uh, believe in something called purgatory, that after you die, um, if, you, if you didn't uh, fit the bill, then, then you have some time to work off your debt, right? Uh, we don't believe that. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. That's not what we see here. Well, the other thing we know that it's not is that it doesn't apply to anybody in this room because you're not ignorant. By the fact that you're listening to my words right now, you are hearing the Bible being proclaimed to you. By the time you leave here, you will know what the will of God is and you are not ignorant. So that doesn't apply to you. But you've been given something. We all have been given something. There's three things that, that, that we see in the passage that we've been given. The first thing that we've been given is knowing God's will. We know God's will. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we looked at the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer isn't a means of you getting the master to do your bidding. 
The Lord's Prayer is about conforming your heart to be like the Master's heart so that you want what He wants, that you see the world the way that He sees the world. You conform to His heart. You and I know the will of God, that that God wishes that no one would perish. God desires to, to welcome us in. God wants us to have the kingdom of God. We know the will of God. The second thing that we have is responsibility for one another. A few weeks ago, we looked at this, this lawyer who comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to go to heaven? And Jesus says, what does the Bible tell you or the law? And, and he says, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus says, you're right. And the guy says, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells him a story about the good Samaritan. Basically, the answer is anybody that crosses your path is your neighbor. There's this responsibility that we have for one another. We see it in the opening pages of Genesis with Cain and Abel, and Cain asks God, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is yes. You are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. We are responsible for one another. It's a God-given responsibility that all of us have. The third thing that we've been given is we've been given this exhortation to proclaim the kingdom of God. To proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus first establishes this kingdom at his death, he consummates it when he returns. His kingdom come. This this consummation of the kingdom, we are headed toward this eschatological crisis where Jesus comes back and he makes all things new and all things right. And then we get ushered into this kingdom and we become heirs of this kingdom. And you know that, that God literally wants to give us the universe. But there's enough of it to go around and so that's why we proclaim it. We've been given these responsibilities to know the will of God, to be responsible for one another and to proclaim his kingdom. The the point for this one is that the lover of God lives in awareness by being vigilant in our responsibility. Vigilant in our responsibility. Look at verses 49 through 53. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. We we would read this and say, well, wait a minute, I thought Jesus came to bring peace on earth, right? Isn't that what the angels sang when he was born? He came to bring peace on earth. He's talking about judgment with fire and he wishes that it was already kindled. Well, Jesus understands that this is not a contrast or a contradiction, but rather there's a sequence to these things. You see, we can't have peace on earth until sin and death has been ultimately destroyed. We can't know peace on earth until sin and death is ultimately destroyed. But when Jesus talks about this fire that he wish he wishes was already started. He's not sitting back and goes, I just want to burn people. I just want to destroy people. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I want to destroy the things that's destroying my creation. I want to destroy sin and death. I wish that there was an end to this. I want to make that now. This shouldn't be a surprise to us. Uh, John the Baptist forewarned that, that Jesus would bring this kind of fire. Matthew 3, 11 and 12, I'll read it to you. He says, 
I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Fire is this picture of judgment. We see it especially in Revelation chapter eight. Fire, fire that that ultimately cleanses the world of sin and death. But that's, that's only one picture of judgment in the passage. There's actually a second picture of judgment, and that's the judgment of baptism. Jesus isn't referring to his baptism by John the Baptist. He's referring to his baptism that's gonna happen at the cross. You see, throughout scripture, water is also seen as a form of judgment. You see this at, with Noah and the flood. You see this with uh, the, the crossing of the Red Sea in the Exodus, and you see it at Jesus' death. John 19 33 and 34 says this, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. There's, there's a watery-like fluid that, that is, surrounds our lungs and our heart. This is what was pierced by the spear that came flowing out of Jesus' side. And John is not so much interested about teaching us human anatomy as he is showing us that this water is a picture of the cleansing flood of Jesus poured out for our reconciliation and that by these wounds we are healed. We are cleansed from our sin because of what he does for us at the cross. It's a picture of judgment that came down on him. And because of that, you and I get to go free. You see, if we embrace the judgment that came down on him, then we don't stand in that other judgment he's talking about regarding fire. There's two points in this section. The first one is this. The love of God lives with awareness by remembering that we deserve judgment, but instead have received mercy and grace. We have received mercy and grace instead of judgment. What happens when we forget that we've received mercy and grace. What do we do to other people? Well, there's a second point that is made in this section. Look uh, at verse 51. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. The result of the cross is that some will believe and some will not. And the cross becomes the dividing line of human history. And the cross itself actually redefines uh, the, the most intimate of relationships. We see in, in the pages of, of Luke itself how Jesus redefines family. At one point, his mother and his stepbrothers come, uh, not stepbrothers, half-brothers, excuse me, half-brothers come to visit him. And he's told, your family's outside. And, and what does Jesus say to them? He says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. In chapter 11, a woman in the crowd just sort of yells out, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus is redefining family. And, and, and this redefinition of, of, of family cuts through biological family. This is, this is evident in our world. Have you ever known of, of a Muslim who has turned to Jesus? And as a result, they're instantly ostracized by their family. And then some parts of the world, you turn and follow Jesus, your father will actually kill you. I doubt that we're gonna experience that, but have you ever lost relationships because you follow Jesus? 
Because of the cross, have you experienced the loss of relationships with people? Have you experienced maybe like the cooling of, 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 of warmth, right? That the, the, there was this, the, the intimacy of relationship that you had with a family member, but now because you follow Jesus, now there's this wall, and it's like, yeah, you can come for the holiday dinner, but you leave Jesus at the door. Don't you dare talk about your faith. I don't want to go there with it. And the thing that makes, you know, the, the most important thing about our lives, we can't share with another, another individual, especially somebody we love because they've, They've erected that wall. Jesus and his cross becomes this dividing line. And the truth is, is that there's a painful, heartbreaking new awareness of this new family. On the other hand, many of us in this new family have an acceptance and a love that we've never experienced from our biological family. And praise God for that. But the lover of God lives aware of a new family. Next point, the lover of God lives aware of the time verses 54 through 56. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Some of us spend more time dealing with our historical cultural moment and what is going on in politics or what is going on culturally or with, with movies or, or actresses or with whatever. Like we, we're paying close attention to what's going on in the media, but we don't give a second thought to what God is doing in the universe. We're so consumed with our own little lives, our own little periods of history. And Jesus is saying, you don't know what time it is. I'm not talking about the time on your watch. I'm talking about where we stand in redemptive history. You see, there's a bigger timeline going on. There's something more important going on than just our little lives. You can look at redemptive history and you can break it down into four epochs of time. It begins in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Creation begins. And here we are as, as image bearers of God, meant to reflect what God is like accurately to the world. But that epoch didn't last very long, apparently, because we rebelled against him, we disobeyed him, we disbelieved him. Our first parents reached out and took that, the fruit they weren't supposed to eat, and they ate it, and instantly what happens? Shame and guilt enters our reality. Sin becomes a part of our existence. And from Genesis three to the end of the Old Testament, we live in this state of fallenness and brokenness, and we can't get to God, and there's this wall between us, and we're enemies of him. But then the New Testament begins and we read the words of John. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The master becomes the slave. He moves into the neighborhood and he lives this life that we can't live in order to go to a cross and pay a debt we can't pay. We read the words at the end of John where he, he, says, he, he, he says it is finished and he gave up his spirit. What's finished? What's finished? Sin. When Jesus dies, our punishment for sin is removed. He was punished in our place. The wrath of God comes down on him. We get to go free. We are free from the punishment of sin. He rises. He ascends to heaven. That he sends forth his spirit to live inside of us. The, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. And now guess what you're freed from? You're freed from the power of sin. You don't have to sin. You're not forced to sin. You're not a slave to sin. 
So we're freed from the punishment of sin, now we're freed from the power of sin, but yet we're still living in the presence of sin. See, this is where we live in redemptive history. We live in a time where the power of sin and the punishment of sin have been removed, but we still live in the presence of sin. There's still a real enemy walking around. There's still the world that's out to get us. There's still our own flesh that's at war with our, with our spirits. Like the presence of sin still needs to be dealt with and it will be dealt with by fire. Be dealt with by fire where Jesus makes an end once and for all. This is that eschatological crisis that we are moving toward, a point in history where the the state of humanity, the condition of humanity is once and for all decided upon. And you see, for some, that will be a glorious day because it will be the end to the only hell they've ever experienced. But for many, it will be the the end to the only heaven they've ever known. As we move towards this crisis. The point here is that lover of God lives aware of the time. We have to get our eyes up and above our own little lives, uh, above the social norms, above even what's going on in our culture or our politics, and, and, and take account, look with eyes wide open about where we exist in redemptive history. Aware of time. If you're not aware of time and if you haven't accepted what Jesus has done for you, then the words of verses 57 and 59 you really need to hear. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right as you go with your accuser before the magistrate? Make an effort to settle with him on the way lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. The accuser, in this instance, is the Holy Spirit who brings conviction of sin. Conviction of sin, that that you are in need of a savior, and you are on your way to see the judge. Now is the time, now is the time. And you see, you can't pay off your debt, but Jesus can pay it for you. You embrace him, and you embrace his salvation and his grace and mercy for you. His grace and his mercy for you. This one is a restatement of a a point we made earlier, that the lover of God lives with awareness that we deserve judgment, but instead have received mercy and grace. Mercy and grace. You know, the truth is, is you and I, we have offended an infinite God. And there is an infinite price to pay. But Jesus steps in. Last point before we wrap up, the lover of God lives with awareness of God's patience. Verses six, oh, I skipped some. Let's go back. Uh, Verses one through five of chapter 13. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is continuing this theme of of judgment, and he wants to point out something to us, two actually misconceptions that we have. One is that um, acts of uh, natural disaster 
or uh, acts of injustice perpetrated by someone in authority, that those should be seen as divine acts of judgment. That's not what Jesus is saying. On this side of the cross, Jesus was judged, and we await another judgment. But to, to think that God is, 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 is acting through uh, leaders or acting through natural uh, events to, to judge us, that is not the truth. So in other words, if you think that the Holocaust was God's judgment, divine judgment against Jews, no. If you think that Hurricane Katrina was an act of divine judgment against New Orleans, no. The second misconception Jesus deals with, it has to do with, in our culture, we have this question, why do bad things happen to good people? But the misconception is that there are, in fact, good people, when what Jesus points out in this section is there are no good people. Look, we live with the results of the fall continually. Because of the presence of sin, we still live with the results of fall. So, so bad things happen. It doesn't necessarily mean that the things that, that those things happened to, that those people were good or bad, because we're all bad. We're all in need of Jesus. We're all in need of salvation, and that's why the exhortation to repent. Now, the last point before we wrap up. Verses six through nine. The lover of God lives with awareness of patience. <clears throat> and he told us this, this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down, why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. In this parable, the landowner is God the Father. The fig tree is humanity. Jesus is the vine dresser. The Father comes looking for faithfulness. He's looking for the, the fruit that man, humanity was meant to produce towards him, faithfulness, and he finds none. And what we see here is Jesus and the vine dresser, he's interceding on behalf of the fig tree. He's interceding on behalf of us. Notice here it says, I've come looking for this fruit for three years. How long was Jesus' ministry? Jesus is on the tail end of it. It's been about three years. And here's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to fertilize it. I'm gonna fertilize it. Jesus is gonna shed his blood. His body is gonna fertilize the tree. Fertilize our faithfulness. That if we will believe in him, then we will be fruitful. Jesus intercedes on our behalf. But what we need to see here is Jesus' call for patience. He's interceding for patience. Are you aware that God has been patient towards us? You look at history and, and you see that throughout history, people have really loved to predict when judgment day would happen. You look at history, you find all sorts of people, some crazy, wingnuts, like Jim Jones, predicting days when judgment would happen. However, you can actually find some, some orthodox Bible-believing Christians doing the same. Do you know that John Calvin and John Wesley both had dates that they predicted Christ's return? And far be it from me to argue with Calvin or with Wesley, but they were wrong in doing that. They were wrong in doing that. Because one, it's, it's not living with, with vigilance. But you see, this comes out of a desire to see God judge. 
And I know we get to that point sometimes. We look around at life, and, and especially the older we get, and we look at the world, and we're like, man, I wish God would just judge this. I wish he would come back, and he would wipe this clean. But that's, that's not living in an awareness of God's patience. Second Peter 3, 8, and 9 says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Living in an awareness of the patience of God, it means that we hold intention. On the one hand, we long to see Jesus. We long to be with him. And it's not because we want his stuff, it's because we want him. If you're a lover of God, you, you long to see Jesus, yet on the same, the, 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 it, the, you hold an intention on, on the other hand that, that there are people that you love that have not repented, that don't have a relationship with him, and so you desire patience towards them. And this is the tension that we live with. People have this idea that God is just dying to destroy it all that he's vindictive, that, that, that he can't wait to bring the fire and bring the heat on humanity. And I would say redemptive history just defies that. God has demonstrated so much patience towards us. See the love of God in that. Live aware of that. Think about the, 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 the person that you, you struggle to get along with Think about your coworker or a family member or, your, or, or a neighbor, but, but somebody that you really struggle to love. Do, do you look at them and see God is being patient toward them? And maybe God could demonstrate his love through me so that they might know him. Instead of being so quick to want God to just judge them and remove them. God is patient. So should we be. So how do we wrap this up? We're gonna do a couple of things. First, I wanna do a brief recap. The lover of God lives in an awareness of our identity. You're not the master. You're a slave. But you're a slave of a different kind of master. Secondly, the lover of God lives in awareness of a need for vigilance. We have a responsibility. Are you vigilant in that? Third, Living in an awareness of mercy and grace. That was restated two times in there. Double emphasis on that one. What happens when you and I forget the mercy and grace we received? Fourth, a new family. Are you aware of a new family, of new lines of loyalty? Fifth, aware of time. Are you aware of the time in which you're living? And sixth, living in awareness of God's patience. I have four discussion questions for you. They're posted on uh, our New Community Facebook group page. You can get them from there, or you can get them from here. But these are designed to help you with the application part of this message. That you sit with people over lunch or in your house church, and you ask one of these questions. And, and, and as you do so, pay careful attention to people's fears and people's desires. One, when you think about the return of Jesus, do you see him as the returning master or as an intruding thief? Secondly, what does it look like to live with vigilance for you? Thirdly, what does it look like when we forget the mercy and grace we've been given? 
And lastly, what relationships have you lost in following Christ? What relationships have you lost? I will, uh, I, I began our time this morning with a, a provocative, culturally provocative word. I will close with another culturally provocative statement. Live on the right side of history. You ever heard that? Make sure that you're living a life that finds itself on the right side of history. Now we see this in our culture as sort of a way of shaming people to getting them to conform with cultural views about what is right and what is wrong. Live on the right side of history. Now, there's, this, this begs two questions. The first is, whose version of history? What history are you talking about? Many of us, we are stuck in our own history our own family of origin, our, our, our own disappointments and, and moments of despair and struggle. We're, we're stuck in how, we, how to get out of these or how we did get out of these, how we've elevated ourselves, how we saved ourselves. We're, we're, we're stuck in, in trying to form that, that ideal future, the end to our history, the end to our story where we retire and we're, 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 we're wealthy and surrounded by grandchildren that love us or whatever the picture is, but we are concerned with these 80 or 90 years, God willing, but that's it. And in light of eternity, what is 90 years? But this is what we're living for, and this is what we are, we're, we're, we're concerned with. What history are we looking at? The second question this begs is, who determines what is right? Who determines what is right? If you're living your life in order for culture to affirm you and say you're on the right side of history, what happens if God in his patience waits another century and 100 years from now, society is tearing down the monuments that you built and rewriting the truth that you wrote as wrong? You see, there is one who determines what is right and there is one who has a history laid out which matters more than anything else. When you understand that, then live on the right side of history. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your plan. Thank you for what it cost you. What other master would do what you did. Lord Jesus, that you would come in the flesh, that you would live that righteous life for us and that you would give it you would exchange it. You would absorb the wrath of God in your own flesh so that we who deserved it could walk free. You pay the ultimate penalty. You have done an end to the punishment of the sin we deserve. And you sent your spirit to live in us to give us power over sin. And in the time in which we live, we still live in the presence of sin. But we hold these things in tension that we long to see you but we long to see our neighbor know you. Help us to live aware. Help us to live with eyes wide open. Help us to see above and beyond our little tiny lives to apprehend your redemptive history. That's what matters. That's the only history that'll be remembered for all eternity. Help us to live in light of that. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.